Hi, everyone. It's the Life of Gem live video podcast 2023. And today we have a special guest on, Lynn Forney. Give us a wave. She is the author of this epic memoir. You're really going to love it. So go out and get it. Choosing Survival, How I Endured a Brutal Attack and a Lifetime of Trauma Through the Power of Action, Choice, and Self-Expression. And she's a filmmaker, she's a dancer, she's a writer, she's an actress. She is a Jill of all trades, a Renaissance woman to be sure. So I'm going to read her bio and then we're going to bring her in and she's going to read something so we can hear her voice to start. Ever since Lynn Forney was a child, she loved to dance and perform. At just three years old, she wasn't shy, cheerleading in front of a crowd. She began taking formal dance lessons at eight. Years later, she would perform, attend a performing arts high school and go on to receive a BFA with highest honors from the University of Florida. Since then, she has performed and choreographed for various dance companies around the South. While dancing, she wanted to expand into new territories and began taking acting classes. That led to her having an agent and appearing in various movies and television shows. She's also written, produced, and directed and starred in two short films. How amazing is that? One of which, I believe it's hot sauce, is getting ready to enter the festival circuit. We're going to talk about that. She still pursues all of these interests and looks forward to combining these skills with a passion for healing through the arts. She's an actor, like I said, dancer, filmmaker, and the author of Choosing Survival. Welcome, Lynn. I'm going to unmute you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a joy. I love your book. I really love your perspective on life and how open and honest you are. Do you mind reading um, something, I think, from the first chapter so people can get a sense of what this book is? Sure. I'm going to read chapter one. It's called I Can't Breathe. I begin to feel my eyelids flutter, slowly, gently at first. I feel so groggy, unsure of where I am. As my eyelids begin to blink open, only a tiny amount, I hear a voice. She's starting to wake up. Look. A few quiet gasps follow. I begin to see figures around me, staring, tense, nothing more than silhouettes. Confusion wraps around my brain, foggy, muddy. Where am I? I continue to peer through the murkiness, adjusting to the light. Suddenly, it's as if a tip of a tornado touches down on top of my head, swiftly pulling up any grogginess out from my body into its fierce cyclone. My eyes rapidly pop open, alert, wide, panicked. As panic shoots through me, I can see the figures clearly now. Her eyes are open. Murmurs follow with bated breaths. I feel my lips pressed around a hard plastic tube. My throat is stuffed full. I feel like I'm suffocating. I want to scream. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. But I am unable to form words. I am unable to cry out. I am unable to even create a breath. I feel like I'm dying. I try to put my hand up to my throat, desperate to ask for help, to communicate what I'm feeling. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Someone help me, please. I pull and pull and pull, but I'm unable to move my hand. It feels so heavy, glued to the bed, pinned down under a force I cannot fight. I try desperately to lift my arm. It won't budge. Lift, lift, lift. I try to will it with all my might. I'm terrified. Why can't I move? 
I quickly realize my entire body is being held captive by the same force that has trapped my arm. My eyes are wild with fear. Why won't any of you help me? My terror builds as I'm unable to ask for help. Everyone around me stays still, staring, looking at me like I'm on display. God, what is happening to me? Everything inside of me is screaming out, but I can do nothing. I can't even breathe. Despite this intense fear coursing through my veins, my eyelids begin to descend. The heaviness of my body begins to seep into them. No, 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 I need help. I struggle against them. Stay open, I plead. But they do not listen. I feel my eyes roll back. My eyelids flutter. My vision begins to blur. The edges get fuzzy. I try to fight. I need help, please. But no words can escape my mouth that is still stuffed full. The tornado returns, and as it touches down, exhaustion seeps into my head. My body quickly drinks it up. The voice in my head becomes more distant, hollow. I can no longer fight. My eyelids continue to flutter. My vision continues to fade until, once again, it is dark. Wow. So powerful. And you know what's really interesting that I just noticed that I did not notice when I read this because I read your book twice. That whole chapter is in present tense. Mm -hmm. And I love present tense memoir. It's how I wrote my book. It's how uh, Frank McCourt wrote Angel's Ashes. It tends to be more seen, like cinematic. And this uh, first piece is just so beautifully done. I mean, you literally are writing the whole thing in present tense in the narrator's head, not in your head now, right? Mm -hmm. So talk about that. Was that a conscious choice? Or did you, um, I think most people gravitate towards writing in past tense when they write memoir because they want to bring in the voice of now. They want to be looking back. I really like people that stick with the narrator in the moment. I think it's more active. It's more, especially when we're talking about traumatic events. So talk about present tense and whether you wrote it in both or how you decided to go present tense scene. Yeah, I definitely wrote it in both. Um, there were that my intention was just just try that chapter out. I kind mm-hmm. of knew just suddenly like this is how I wanted to open the book. I'm like, this is it. This is how I'm opening it. And um, it was such a short moment in my life, but it just left a huge impact that you know the fact that I can recall it so clearly. Um, and I just thought it would be really like, wouldn't it be interesting if? Wouldn't that be interesting if I could do this? And so I ended up writing a few more chapters in that first person present tense, and um, because I wanted the the reader to feel like they were living it with me um for better or worse but i just thought it, it like you said it's just it's more rich it's more full um and i just thought it'd be more captivating and interesting um to write it from that perspective but i certainly have others from you know present tense kind of looking back so i can bring in those different perspectives as well yeah yeah i mean that's the problem um for me with present tense i love it and that's what i always write in but it's really hard if you're writing, let's say, a present tense child voice mm-hmm. and you want to bring in the adult narrator. You really can't. You really just got to stick with like when I wrote my book about my it has to do a lot with my family. I had to write as if Jenny Juanita was little in that she doesn't know her mother now and has forgiven her and understands her and sees how hard she it's like no you were Jenny in that moment Mm -hmm. so when you were writing that um did that piece come out like water or was it difficult to write 
that, that first chapter. A little bit of both. And that sounds strange. I think, mm-hmm. um, it flowed pretty well. I will admit it was a little bit difficult to stay in that present tense because I started to want to go, you know, back and forth. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a bad habit I have anyway, <laughs> because, you know, like you had a thought oh. and that was a few seconds ago, therefore it's past tense now. Right. So, it's, so oh, I had to tense, kind of... is, tense just really quick is the bane of my existence <laughs> and to switch between present and past and even to past passive is very difficult. So if you're in present tense and you want to flesh back, that is a very difficult thing to do. So talk about that. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, exactly. I just, you know, I was like, I just, I really had to pay attention, like, because I would kind of be writing and and typically it'll flow and I'll usually kind of get to the spot where I might stop and then I'll reread what I've done. So I kind of tend to edit as I write. And I know some people kind of just say, you know, I was even told kind of just let it flow, let it flow. But for me, that just does not work as well. Um, so I, I tend to, you know, again, kind of reread and that will allow me to pick up and see or feel like, oh, and I'll know kind of instinctively like where to go now. So that's kind of how it works for me. And then I would catch myself starting to talk about, you know, or start to type in past tense, be like, oh, no, let me, let me fix that. But in this chapter in particular, I think it, it was my first attempt trying to write that way. Um, But overall, I think it went pretty well, (laughs) but it was, it was difficult because like you said, I want to start, I want to almost interject myself because now I know this, or I know that, that I didn't know at that time, just like you said. Um, I also have a very short chapter of something that did happen to me when I was five. And I wrote it from that five-year-old perspective. And that was also it's tough because again, you want to like the why, not that I'm wise, but you know, the older part of me that can look back at these things because I've learned and I've healed and I can understand better. I want to start interjecting and um, almost kind of comforting that little girl, you know, but you kind of, I'm like, no, let me, let me let her speak in this moment um, and give her that, that breath. And I think I just went around in circles, but yeah. So, um, but yeah, past tense, present tense, flopping back and forth. It is, it is tough. And it's, um, it is definitely more emotional this way too. When you're writing in that first person present tense, it's, you're, it's bringing you back as the writer into those, that time and into those emotions. And so that was also challenging. Yeah. And I noticed when you wrote in that, uh, five-year-old perspective with something that happened, um, you used more simple language. It mm-hmm. wasn't um, active present tense voice. The chapter before where you're talking about dance and stuff, it's in past tense. So you do flip between and it's it's mm-hmm. really um, just a testament to your writing that you're able to do that because not everyone can do that. Um, I have a question. So this is actually a hybrid book and um, there's a memoir and it's most, I'd say it's like 90% memoir. And then there's about 5% poetry. And then there's about 5% of like a, questioning self-help kind of like reader's guide that uh, plays a role in kind of addressing mental health and some of the issues you raise in this book and healing from trauma. What made you decide to go hybrid and talk a little bit about your journey to publication? Because you do a lot of things. How hard was it to find a publisher and all that? Um, Thank you. Um, What was, so finding a publisher, I, I have a coach. So this is such a wild story. Um, I wanted to start singing lessons because that's sort of one of the last things that I haven't tried. And it kind of is the most terrifying to me, but I found this singing coach through um, a workshop I did. That's a little bit of like woo woo type stuff. And what's um, woo woo type stuff? Woo-woo, like, um, you know, astrology and um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just like, that seems to be the word, right? The woo woo, but it was, it's a really cool group. And she brings in all these different kinds of classes, um, like Akashic records and I don't know, 
all, all kinds of things. But anyway, I, I reached out to this woman like probably like nine months later and decided like I'm going to take these lessons with her. It turned out she was a coach and then she had a coaching program. And then she was the person like it turned out her her uh, degree was in creative writing. I mean, it was just so wild how this just sort of like uh, unfolded so perfectly. And she was the one that recommended the publisher for me. And so it is a woman out of Canada that, that does self-publishing. And I'm just so thrilled with how the book looks because it was very important to me for it to look like a quote unquote real book. You know, like I want it to look professional. I want it to be aligned properly. Um, no, and it is a real book. You know, Annie you. Lamott, um, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time called, um, Traveling Mercies and uh, Annie Lomas from Maroon and she writes, she's a Christian, but she writes a lot of kind of like essays and she's very self-deprecating. I don't read a lot of Christian uh, memoir, but hers, she's famous, you know, and she says, um, cause her husband is self-published. He wrote this book about, um, he's kind of like a new agey dude. And he wrote this new age book that was actually really good. And it was self-published. It was kind of about how color and how you can use color to kind of increase your positivity and aura and stuff. Okay. So, but Annie Lamont said in a post on Twitter that if she were to publish today, she would self-publish. And, you know, um, I have both books, but mine are with small presses. I have to do all my own marketing and all that stuff too. So there really is, the line is starting to blur with publishing and the product that you can get now, it's its beautifully done. And so um, let's talk about this because we have a li- lot of writers that listen in later and stuff. When you do the self-publishing, did you hire your own publicist and how did that work? I did. Um, mm-hmm. I know that's probably the thing that I struggle with the most is you know, networking, if you will, like, if you tell me to show up and do this thing, like, I can do that. I'm going to I know that I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to prepare properly and all that. But getting from A to B, I'm like, I don't know. So I did get a a hire a publishing company. And um, not gonna lie, it's definitely uh, uh, not cheap. (laughs) But it was definitely it was worthwhile, because I wanted help getting this getting this out. And um, so yeah, that is the route that I took. And um, not that a self-published book is not a real book, but you know what I mean? I mean, there is, I think yeah. you're right. It is getting more blurred, but I, I know for a while it was like, you're either published or it's not, you know, it's trash kind of, I feel like that was a, a yeah. lot of the attitude that could, could oh, be. Oh yeah. There was a afraid. stigma. Yes, definitely. Sure. Yeah. But then with the advent of hybrid presses, like she writes and stuff like that. And my friend Linda Hogan published with them. And I know uh, Mary Camarillo who wrote a couple of pretty well-known and good well-selling books went with them and that's a hybrid you know you put out money hopefully you recoup it and um self-publishing is almost the same way now you're just doing a lot of the stuff yourself you're doing your own cover you're doing your own layout or you're hiring an editor to help you with that did you do everything yourself as far as the layout or did you hire a developmental editor no, the uh, the woman that helped me publish, she did she did the layout. She helped me design the cover. So I kind of told her, you know, she asked me like, "What are your favorite colors?" And I told her that I would really love to have a photo of me dancing on the cover. You know, I just didn't want like a random photo. Like if it's gonna be somebody, I want it to be me. Um, so yeah. she really listened to me, and she and I'm just you know, and she gave me like a few options and different things like that. And I'm just I don't know, I'm just really thrilled with how it turned out. And um, and she's really efficient and really smart, and she was able to direct me to an editor as well that she's like I think this editor would do well with your particular style of work um and so it was really helpful because I really had no idea I'm like I don't know what I'm doing at all um except for typing into my computer um and you'd asked me earlier about why the hybrid style book I I also just let this book develop as it was going Mm. to I didn't set out to say I'm going to do this this and this um I wrote 
uh, one of the poems in there. Um, so I'd moved. So I've lived. I live in Austin currently. My husband and I moved away. Then we moved back. And I'll I'll be honest. It, it wasn't a super. I wasn't super thrilled about it. And so I went through a bout of depression. And I wrote the poem, The Cage. So I wrote that poem before I ever wrote this book. And I just felt like, wow, I, I just feel like this poem belongs in this book. And how can I make that work? Because it does feel so out of left field. And I didn't quite understand how I was going to make this make sense. But I was, I just kind of kept trusting the process. And I would just write each chapter individually. I definitely put off the chapters that I knew would be very emotionally challenging for me. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. But I would, you know, yeah. something would come up and I would write that. And, um, and I, like I said, I, you know, every now and again, I'd write like a little kind of a table of contents and, and see how it, if, if it was flowing and making sense, but I just, I just let it, I just let it happen. And the chapters at the end is something I decided to do right before I sent it to the publisher because I wanted to give people resources. I, I wanted to extend that hand to say, you know, even if, you know, if you know, know nothing else, here's a few places you can start because I just didn't want people to read this book and then kind of be lost as to what to do next if they're, if they're struggling. And that's a big reason why I wrote it. I, I felt very alone going through a lot of these things. And I think my biggest, hopefully one of my biggest things is I, I want to make people feel seen and heard and not alone. Well, it's such a huge accomplishment. And I think um, this book will live on forever. It really will, you know? And, um, and that's why uh, True Creatives Write. We write because we have to. Because we have something to say and you have a lot to say. Um, I think a mark of a true creative is someone who really doesn't kind of know what they're doing and you just went with the process, right? It's um, kind of a hybrid of what I would call a literary memoir. And um, at the very end, you have these questions, but it's more like a reader's guide. So I think that you just have it, you know, um, with not a, you know, you didn't have like, you didn't, you know, do an MFA program or anything like that. And you came out with this beautiful book. So it just goes to show people who are listening in and who are watching, uh, don't give up and find a way to put your book out there. You know, my journey, um, I started writing my long memoir 15 years ago. It, I, at year 12, I did not have a publisher or press. And I was like, is this ever going to happen? Maybe not. And then I wrote this book and it got published really quick. And that led to this finding a press for this book. So I think that whichever way you go, you have to believe in your voice and your mission. And people told me young adult memoir does not exist. And I'm like, um, have you read House on Mango Street? Even <laughs> parts of Portrait of the Artist by James Joyce, which is auto fiction. Um, have you read these books? Yeah, it does exist. Judy Bloom um, is fiction, but it reads like, you know, young adult memoir. And so um, I always knew what the what the so-called product, what the ultimate thing would look like. And so many people tried to get me to do it different. Mm. And I think you just have to know who you are and what you want to do with it. And like I said, this book defies genre in a way. And that's what I love about it. Do you mind um, talking about some of the mental health issues you raise in the book? And, and we'll get to the traumatic event. But I think um, being, I'm a mental health lawyer and I work with the most um, impacted clientele in Riverside that are incompetent that are at the state hospitals. And you're very open in your book. And I think you do reduce the stigma in the sense that you're showing us that this can happen to anyone. And you talk about a stay in a state hospital or a mini hospital. It's mm -hmm. kind of like an ETS, I would assume, like a 5150 holding uh, place. So talk about that if you don't mind, just so people understand like mental health, 
I personally, I always say I can do crazy, but I can't do sane. Um, I have, I've been through depression, uh, severe depression. I have anxiety. I think everyone, and it's just a matter of degree and a spectrum. So talk about that. Like was one of your goals in this book to reduce the stigma that people, um, say about mental health and to also bring it out into the light, you know, to, to shine a light on what this is like. Absolutely. Um, I definitely struggled with how deep to go with my depression because that was still, and I, I also say this in my book, like I'm still having trouble. I want to delete these words, you know? So something else I did while I was writing, I kind of let that voice come through too, as well. Um, because it, it does feel shameful still. It does feel embarrassing. And, and, and I, and that even makes me feel sad to even admit that. But, um, I, what I, what I, I think ultimately I was, scared that I got um, so much victim shaming and people telling me, you know, you must have known him or what did you do to piss him off and this and that. And I just didn't want to relive that. I didn't want to p- people to go, oh, you've suffered from depression, which is also what happened back then as well. You suffered from depression. Therefore, this must not be true. All You must have a, you know, you weren't in your right head or whatever you were thinking. And that was definitely a fear of mine. And, but ultimately, I just felt like for my story to be shared that deserved and needed to be seen and shared as well. And um, some of the things that I went through with the police wouldn't make any sense if I didn't go into some of my history with depression. So I just felt like, well, I have to talk about it at least to some degree. And then I just, that was a big hurdle for me to kind of just completely go there and be like, yes, I was, you know, I was taken to a hospital when I was 19 and, you know, and and, um, because I just, was super depressed. And I, you know, and now looking back, there's things that happened to me when I was very young that kind of explain more maybe why that happened for me. And and there's also um, family history of it in my family as well, you know, so it's, it's a combination and culmination of things. But yeah, I, I, one of the things that I would always get to me is, um, I think that is changing, but therapy back in the day, like, oh, strong people don't need therapy, right? I'm strong enough to fix this on my own. Only weak people need therapy. And I would literally be like, well, do you think that I'm weak? Because this was actually something my husband and I would talk about way or early on. We've been together since I was like 22. Um, oh, yeah. But I'm like, excuse me, you know, but, he, but he's like, well, no, it doesn't really apply to you. But I just feel like I, I should be able to fix this on my own. I'm like, well, why? It's a very male perspective, one that my own spouse shares. You know, I've been with my husband since I was 20, 21 as well. I'm 52 now. And um, I think that, um, and culturally, you know, he's Argentine and Latin households tend not to, you know, and I think that it's so important that, I mean, honestly, um, this book needs to get out. Um, You should, uh, you know, we should have it at, at state hospitals even. Because what you show is that you can come back from this and that your first act is not your last and you've become so accomplished in so many things that it's kind of irrelevant. Um, I do want to give some context. So um, you talked about the police and the investigation. You have a whole chapter about the night you were stabbed multiple times by an intruder in your house. And what was particularly horrifying for me about the attack was how visceral you wrote it. It's beautifully done in active present tense scene. But then you talk about the police investigation. And I've seen this where they're victim blaming or they're trying to focus on the wrong suspect. And they actually accused you of harm, trying to harm yourself 
when you were stabbed in the back and multiple times and you told them it was a male intruder and then they tried to bring to get you to implicate your mother. Talk about that. Like how was dealing with the criminal system that's pretty incompetent, I believe. Um, I see it. You know, there's good people in it. They want to do the right thing. Maybe they just don't have the training. Maybe they're just ignorant. I don't know. But the kind of shaming and gaslighting that you went through as a woman uh, just because of your mental health history, mm-hmm. it was frankly horrifying to me. Like they almost they almost assaulted you again through these kind of gaslighting techniques, not believing you. I would say they did assault me again, mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. Um, you know, on the one hand, I understand they need to do their jobs and I understand that these things do happen in families. So I don't blame them for, you know, for bringing up my mom or anything. I really don't. But it was just the way they went about it. Um, just, I just felt like it was over and over and over again. Or, you know, did yeah. you drink? Did you do drugs? Did you drink? Do you, I'm like, how many times do I have to answer the same question? And I, and I don't know, I don't know the legal system. I don't know, you know, if they could have just taken my blood off the floor, but I'm like, why didn't you just take a bunch of blood? There's all over the place. Like take it, test it, you know, do what you need to do because I can't, I yeah. just don't know why. I just felt like they just did such a piss poor job of investigating the scene. Um, and, and they never charged anyone. No, they didn't. And, um, I was asked one time, like, would I want to go back and have them like reopen the case? And I honestly don't because I just think it would be so severely traumatizing to me. And I don't think I would get the result that I want or I'm hoping for um, because they didn't take the evidence in the first place. And this is where I can start to feel like my anger a little bit still is bubbling in there because I just was treated so poorly from not only the police, but also the nurses, a lot of the nurses at the hospital. Um, I just kind of felt like, and I'll never know the the real truth, but I just felt like they treated me like oh you're just some person that oh you hurt yourself or which was so crazy like it was just so ridiculous to me like one of my stab wounds is across my wrist on the top of my wrist right yeah um one of them was on my ear like I have my back like on my leg like it was just all over like all over the place and the fact that I survived it to me was I just couldn't believe anybody thought that I at that point had tried to do something like that when I lived through I'm like hello I have I'm alive um, and at one point, one of the doctors or someone involved says, this is a fighter. Like, this yes. is not a woman who would harm herself. This is a woman who's fighting to stay alive. And the only way you stayed alive after losing 21 pints of blood in this attack um, is through your own kind of wherewithal to kind of just fight through it. Right. Do you, yeah. do you remember fighting for your life or oh. does it kind of blur? No, I remember I think it's weird. I think some of my childhood trauma where I do mm. believe I did, I did dissociate. I don't know if that somehow prepared me for this. Mm. I don't, I, that's is where I, I can't explain it, but I remember, I mean, that's how I could write it in such vivid detail. I remember everything yeah. about it. You know, I mean, like when I, you know, was in the hospital and they were going to try to do a cat scan, I started bleeding. Like one of my stab wounds popped back open and I'm like, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. I'm telling them my blood type. I'm telling, you know, like everything they're doing, I'm trying to stay a step ahead, you know, and telling them like I'm informing them like, and, um, you know, because, and that's not the sign of someone who wants to die. Right. Like that's, I mean, the fact that I even lived when I got to the hospital said a lot, you know, like I was like, I was forcing myself to stay awake and stay present. And, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I fully believe that, I think I would have been helped. This may sound strange, but I would have been helped if I wanted to stay here on this earth or if I wanted to move on. I really do um, yeah. spiritually. And, but it was kind of my choice and I I made it and I fought to be here. And well, I'm um, really it was almost, glad you did. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. But yeah. it's just, it's so, it's almost insulting. It was just like, such like a slap in the face. I, I, there are just so many 
emotions. I can't, I just, I can't even like express them all, but, um, did you, you know, journal, um, during this time or is, because, you know, there's been a lot of studies recently about memory and people would always say, Oh, why do you remember the bad stuff? It's because the bad stuff actually sticks in your brain, mm-hmm. um, or the important stuff. Like we may, I may only remember a couple things from my senior year of high school. Cause it's pretty much wasted the whole time. <laughs> but I do remember the day I dropped out. I remember my twin sister graduating and me watching her. Why? Because I was traumatized. I was ashamed. I was sad. I was depressed. I wanted to kill myself. You know, I had all these Mm -hmm. thoughts going through my head and they say that it's, that's the reason they stick. Mm -hmm. So this traumatic event you had, I'm not surprised that you can write it vividly. Right. And then being reassaulted by the police. I'm not surprised you can write it vividly because you remember it. Yeah. And that was, I mean, and I, and I write in my book to multiple, I mean, and I still believe this to this day and I'm probably always will like, which was worse getting stabbed or getting, or not having people like doubting me and not believing me, you know, I had to take a lie detector test and I, I cannot tell you, I wanted to throw that machine across the room and smash into a billion pieces. I mean, it was just, it was so degrading and almost humiliating and just may I, I've kind of learned, I think one of the things is like to stuff my anger and I'm trying to like, yeah feel it and like let it come out. But I mean, I was just trembling with anger. I mean, just trying to, to suppress those emotions because I'm in this police, you know, I'm in, I'm intimidated and it's scary. And like, and the fact that I couldn't even believe I was, I'm like, why am I even here right now? Like you should be out on the street trying to find this person. And um, what was even more insulting in a way is that later on it, it came out as truth that they, they already knew who this person was. They were following him the night that I got attacked, but they got called away on a drug case. And so I'm like, wow. so you knew all of this and you still put me through hell, literal hell for months. Yeah. Knowing well, what you knew. Oh my God. I'll say this. This is the writer's best revenge, right? <laughs> I would say you better be nice to me or you'll end up in my book. And I mean, these, you really, it's a scathing rebuke of the police and their lack thereof of investigation. Um, let's talk about anger because um, I, we talked about this in the green room. And I really want my um, readers to understand that when you write memoir, you have to be very self-aware. And that's why it takes so long. And I think memoir for me is the, it's my favorite genre, but I think it's the hardest genre to write as far as personally having to work through things because it's an excavation of the self is how I describe memoir. Memoir is not a biography of yourself. It's certain events in your life that stick out that you turn into a narrative that should read like fiction in the best, in the best memoirs like yours. They do read like fiction, right? And so um, not that they're fictional, but they have the same craft as fiction, mm-hmm. right? The same storytelling te- techniques. And so let's talk about you writing yourself as a narrator, imperfect at times, mental health issues, super angry, right? You have all this anger that you're just holding on to and you talk about it and it's almost self-perpetuating in a way, right? Cause you're holding on to all this stuff. How did you finally decide to let go? Like what was the catalyst personally? And then how did you decide to write about yourself in your book? Did you just like say, forget it. I'm just going to leave blood on the page and I'm going to tell exactly who I am. Warts and all. And we all have warts. It's not you. It's all of us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe you can write memoir well unless you can do it um, and leave blood on the page. There's really no point if you can't. If you, I tell people, if you can't write about your family, do it when you can. 
or put it in a drawer. You don't have to show it to anyone, but write the truth. Because when we try to um, hide things, it comes out, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Yeah, um, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I will say that I, ever since this happened to me, when I would when I would try to tell the person the story, I would literally start, they, the, just the look on their face, they were just like, oh my God, because there's so many layers and levels to it. I would just be like, I know I should just write a book, right? I know, this is so crazy. And that, has, that always stuck with me. Um, and I taught Pilates for a long time. And one of my clients was a writer and she was like, I don't know, maybe I could write about that. And I literally remember, and this is probably, I don't know, 14 years ago. I literally remember thinking like, but I want to write about it. I didn't say it out loud, but that's what, what I thought. Yeah. And, um, I really don't think I could have written this earlier or probably, you know, I hate to use the word should, but should have written it earlier because I needed to go through all this this healing process and all this discovery and, um, and do what I did to get to this place. If I had written it 10, 15, 20 years ago, I think it would have been a very different book and, um, maybe even self-indulgent or something. I don't know. Mm, I'm not that type yeah. of person, but it's just because what I didn't want was like, look at me. I'm so great. You know, <laughs> like yeah. I'm so amazing. I can do all this stuff. It was more, <laughs> it was scary. And, um, but I just thought this is another, this is something I have to do. And it just became necessary for me to do it. Um, yeah. I will say that COVID for me allowed me to do this because I'm normally mm -hmm. so busy performing and dancing and going on, you know, and choreographing and going on auditions and all these things that I was forced to sit down. I was forced to sit still. And so that was kind of the gift, if you will, of a really terrible time for everyone. Um, it allowed me to sit down and do this. And I just literally had a, um, I did a meditation on January 1st and I was like, this is the year this is coming out. And I just made wow. that decision. And that was that I just did it. I just said that this is happening the end. And, and I was just come hella high water is going to make it happen. And like I said, I was, I was writing it. It just, I was like, I have to include these things that do still bring me shame or make me worried that people are going to say that I'm, you know, full of crap or whatever it is. Cause that is scary that it, you know, that would be really horrible, but I just had to believe that the good that could come from this outweighed anything, you know, any bad, like it just, I, I don't know. I just had to really believe that and trust that. I have goosebumps. Mm. I really do believe, believe this. We can do anything. We live in kind of a matrix. If we think of everything's relative, everything's kind of an illusion, right? Including money, all these things that block us, our own self-saboteur voice that we're not this or we're not that. You can actually do anything you set your mind to. The question is, how bad do you want it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I how agree. How much are you willing to risk, right? Mm -hmm. And writing your story with all the complicated factors and all of your beautiful history, but then your trauma that you're having to deal with. And <clears throat> to do this in memoir form is actually a, an act of bravery, right? And I just read um, Warrior of Light, which is a companion to one of my favorite books, The Alchemist. And he has this quote in it about why we try to change the world and we don't even know why. Right. So this book, it really was not it, like maybe if you'd written earlier, it would have been. But it was really an act of bravery trying to help other people through your own story. Right. So, I mm -hmm. mean, it's very beautiful. And the fact that COVID, you know, it helped a lot of us over uh, over like I do a lot, too. Um, and it's really hard for me to sit. Mm -hmm. still and sit and um, my friend Hannah calls it sitting in the hours and to be still and to just be with myself and even just you know not rush my writing and just be be sitting in myself and 
So I think COVID was a gift to many of us overachievers, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about, um, really quick, you talked about all the other things to do. I want to talk about your films. Mm -hmm. So you have two short films. Tell me about Hot Sauce. I really want people to know about that. It sounds fascinating. And by the way, I know that you were taking singing lessons, but you have a beautiful voice. So I'm sure you're a good singer. So no, I can tell. You just have this really cool tone to your voice. Um, talk to us about the film aspect and how you got into that as an actress and a dancer, how you transitioned to film and screenwriting and the two short films you've made, one of which is hitting the festival circuit. Yeah, it's actually, I should have updated that. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, it's actually in the, it's it's won some awards, which I can't, I'm like so thrilled. Um, yeah, and I mean, like it's also gotten rejected from things too. So it's, you know, I don't know. I'm always like, I have that issue. Like, I don't know. Um, so <laughs> I get uncomfortable. Like, you, don't, yeah. you don't have to talk about what it did win. <laughs> talk about what it did win because I'll tell you I this. <clears throat> for everything that we apply for and all this stuff, you know, you may might get one out of 10, but then that one out of 10 thing is a huge thing. So talk to us about the film, the awards and the whole, how that works with the short film. Yeah. So um, I, like I mentioned earlier, I, we, my husband and I moved back to Austin. I just kind of felt like I lost my entire network. I was in a dance company there. I had an agent there. I was very, you know, I was get, kind of getting more and more auditions and getting more trusted by the casting directors and putting on shows. And, and I also write about that in the book too. But um, I literally was like, what can I write that I could star in? Because I just want to act more. I just want to be, I just want to do it. So like literally like, and this was really right before shutdown um, or lockdown. Um, and it, this is one of those things that I literally just felt like it just came, it just came out because the only thing I can remember is, okay, I, I don't enjoy um, location scouting. <laughs> so I was like, what can I film in my house? Because I don't want to deal, deal with any of that. And obviously we have a limited to low to no budget that we're working with because we're, you know, paying for the whole thing. And I just sort of started imagining and I'm very, very visual. So I can kind of imagine things happening as I'm seeing them in my mind or even the writing on the page. And it just started flowing out. And I kind of just had this idea of, you know, it it became a, a horror musical comedy. So it's like, I'm kind of, you know, I hear this, uh, you know, announcement that there's a masked man on the loose. And so I'm coming into my house and then, you know, I'm hearing these giggles and it turns out there's these like three singers that kind of keep popping up behind my head. And I don't really notice, I hear them, but I don't see them. And so I, and I love to, things that make you think and wonder and go, was it this? Was it that? Was it this? I just love that. So it's kind of this idea, are they real? Are they in my head? Is this my inner dialogue coming to life? Um, is the masked man even real? You know, because he does come later on too. So you're kind of left wondering like, what is real in this entire movie? Is this whole thing happening in my head? And it, I really wanted oh. the audience to decide while it's ha having these silly, silly <laughs> songs, <laughs> you know, and like all this like ludicrous action going on. But I was able, they, they had to do choreography, um, my friends, you know, so cool. I, I, I say that they lovingly hated me because none of them are dancers, but I also knew that gave it a different element. So I had to, I had to also choreograph smartly because I'm like, I'm choreographing on people, choreographing on people that, that are not dancers. So how can I make them look good um, while still being clever and, you know, and, and creating movement that I'm happy with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, and I, and I had to sing the songs and I had to sing like in three different tones. So to have the three singers and um, it was just really fun. I'm, I'm really thrilled how it turned out. My husband wrote the score for it. So wow. it's just so much. Yeah. And I got to do so many things that are me and I just, I'm, I am really excited. About it. I can't wait to watch hot sauce. We talked about it. You described it as kind of a little shop of horrors kind of 
but then it intersects with your real life in this weird way with the masked man and kind of this person on the loose. That's what I love about it. You're bringing all these different things and you're kind of using it as your superpower to kind of, you know, kind of play with it a little with these ideas. And um, what was the costuming aesthetic? Did you go with like a retro look or what did you go with? That's so funny you said that. I did. So the girls Uh are in kind of these, like, I want to say kind of 50s little polka dot, you know, cutesy dresses. And um, I'm just wearing like gym glows because I'm, you know, I literally, because that's part of it too. Like, well, why am I coming home with not without a purse? Like, you do have to think about these things because I didn't want to deal with that. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to have my keys in my hand. I'm coming from the gym, you know, let's just say, um, because I don't want to, I didn't want that to become an, an issue. So that's what I did for me. And the masked man is pretty simply dressed. And I had someone who could create a mask. Ask. And then we have this like fancy dinner scene at the end. So we're like very zhuzhed up. Um, so that was the costume. But yeah, exactly. Like 50s doo-wop girls is kind of what I wanted. That's kind of what I pictured. Yeah, and yeah. so it's now, but then you have this retro element with these people popping up. Absolutely. Doing yeah. this music. Oh, very yeah. cool. Very yeah. cool. Thanks. And um, so that's not, what kind of awards did it win? It's on the, fe- it's going to the festival circuit. How does it work with a short film? I don't really know having never really um been in the business like how does it work like do you have to submit to different festivals Mm -hmm. you do your film you self-financed it who shot it um did you get any outside funding how does that work you can get outside funding i didn't um because again that's usually not what i'm great at is finding money i wish i was but um (laughs) yeah it was just something like i knew like we're gonna just produce this ourselves my husband and I are basically producers and I have some friends who have gotten into filmmaking and he happens to have a lot of the equipment um so I was able to kind of team up with his team and I roped my best friend into it she's not she's never been in front of a camera like she's like are you sure you want me to do this I'm like yes because her her sense of humor is so much like mine I'm like I need yes like I you know and I kept having to kind of convince her I'm like no I I wouldn't ask you if I didn't trust you like I know you can do this and so it was fun to kind of watch her you know kind of light up and have this this unique experience but um yeah, so you essentially have to pay to submit to festivals. Okay. Um, and there's just more and more of them. So honestly, it gets kind of overwhelming. And I just kind of, ha- I'm like, I don't know, this one, this one, maybe we want to go to Nashville. So I'll just look for one in Nashville. I mean, literally, it's kind of like that. Um, and um, so one of the awards I got actually was Best Editing, which I thought was really great, because I feel like that's not typically a comedy thing. Um, and it, that was a festival in England that I just kind of had a feeling about. And it got it. It got in it, it had seven nominations, one for best editing and came in like second place and third place for a few other things. Wow, um, very cool. Yeah. And then I'm gonna be in a festival in Austin the end of this month and it's up for five different awards. Um Ooh. most original concept is one. Um best ensemble cast, um, things like that. So it's, you know, it's all a little different. I did also win for best choreography in a film at at New York women's festival in New York. So that was really exciting. That was really cool. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, and I, it's really fun to see like how it's appreciated in the lit laughs festivals, what the festival is called. They, um, they wrote up a review for me and it was just Mm. so thrilling to read that because obviously, like I said, I've gotten rejected as well. And it just seeing like everything he had to say was just, it like touched my heart and I was like, okay, like this is worth it. You know, I can keep doing this because it really is the business of rejection. I mean, acting and our arts in general, I mean, it just really is. Well, I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as someone who personally never started performing till a couple of years ago, really with this podcast and live performances at uh, literary venues where I've, I've moved from reading to performance. Mm-hmm. And there is a difference, right? Writers read their work. I try to perform it. I try to do the voices, do the characters, do the movements, 
uh, change my modalities and stuff in my voice. But I, I, there's an art to it. And I think, I don't know, you tell me because you're the actress. Is it about being present and just feeling it and doing it? Because I feel like I lose myself when I do it. And it's really exciting to kind of find something I love so much at this age that I never thought I would be good at. I took a speech class in my 20s and I think and I I was horrible. I've tried to perform before horrible, so nervous. Mm-hmm. And I think it's years and years of being a lawyer and having to be in the courtroom and talk extemporaneously that I finally got over my nerves and I just don't get nervous anymore. I, do, I don't, or if I do, it doesn't impact my performance. What do you think about performance? What is it? Is it that losing yourself invisible line? Is it um, inhabiting the character? Like, what do you do as an actress and as a writer? And if, and I also want to know if you're ever going to turn this into a one-hander, like a one-woman show kind of thing. That's, wow. Um, <laughs> I've, someone else was like, I could see this being a movie. Um, well, real quick to answer your question, the, the Cage poem, I have a dance on film idea I would love to create based on that poem. So that's sort of cooking in, in my brain. Um, performance for me. So I've spent most of my life performing as a dancer. Um, film acting is definitely a different nuance than stage acting. I've, I did do a musical. I got to play Columbia in Rocky Horror Show and it was the most fun thing ever. And um, it was so funny because they weren't going to have like me tap. I guess they'd never had someone be able to tap dance. And I was like, oh no, oh no, babies. I'm tap dancing. Like this is happening. I'm tap oh, oh yeah. I was like for Halloween. My best friend was Magenta and I was Columbia. Columbia's oh, fantastic. That's so great. And I mean, yeah. I, I choreographed it for myself. I'm like, look, I'll choreograph it. Like no problem. Um, so, cause that's where I do know like my comfort is, but there, to me, it's, it comes down to almost this, this energy shift. Um, mm-hmm. For me, for so many years when I was on the stage and I was it, it, there's a, a level of presence that you can't, for me, I could never find anywhere else. And it, it allowed me to get all of the inner voices that were crappy yeah. to myself, you know, like they had to leave the building because I had to be so present. And it just comes from this deep guttural place that I, that I could just completely expose myself mm. and just put everything out there. And I feel like when you, when you're able to do that as a performer, like the audience feels it, they know it, they know when you're phoning it in and they know when you're not. And mm. um, that to me is just the, the power and the gift of performance. And so in acting, you know, especially with film, it's a lot of start, stop, start and stop and do it a million times and all that. So it's hard to kind of stay as, mm. I don't know, it's, it's a different feel. It's a definitely a different feeling, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, a lot of waiting around. Oh, it's hurry up and wait. Acting. Yeah, yeah, he talks about how, because I have no patience, how frustrating like film and TV is. But the stage, I would imagine, that must be like very um, like endorphins, like just a lot of like immediate feedback, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's nothing like it. And I think um, I still get nervous every time I perform, but I, but I feel <laughs> like if I lost that nervousness, like it would be sad to me because it's just that little like those little butterflies, not to where it's going to affect my performance in a, in a bad way, but it's just sort of like it's, it's excitement, it's adrenaline, it's endorphins. It's like, oh, you know, it, it's, it is some nervousness like because I don't want to screw up, you know, and especially with dance, like I don't know how many people realize it. But there's so much going on that we have to keep track of. And I never connected mm-hmm. this literally until like a few weeks ago. I was because I, I got diagnosed with ADHD about six years ago. And I was like, what? 
And it makes so much sense. And I'm like, no wonder I can keep track of so many things because it comes so naturally to me, you know, because we have to not only know where, like, I have to know where I am in space, the movements I'm doing, um, when I need to enter and exit, I need to know where I I could keep track of everybody else, where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be, this person missed this entrance and this exit, this person's a little too close to me. Now I have to just, you know, it's like, it's it's constant problem solving constantly. And, you know, stage acting is kind of similar to, um, you know, with the musical I did because, you're with other people and it's happening in real time. So that's kind of part of the thrill to me. It's like problem solving at the same time as staying completely present. I don't know. There's just so much happening. And then again, ultimately to me, it's that, it's that energetic exchange. It's just, there's just nothing like it. And I'll say this, your energy is so positive and optimistic. And what's interesting about the book is, you know, you talk a lot about all your struggles and stuff, but you really can't see it in person. And so it's just super interesting um, memoir and people would say the same thing about me. If you read my blog, I deal with a lot of depression, anxiety. I couldn't have kids. I have all this regret with my dad and him dying and me not seeing my parents more and all this stuff. And so, I mean, I think that we have these internal struggles in our head and that we've dealt with and trauma and stuff, but your, your energy is very light. And I think it's the creative spark. Yeah, I think that, and, um, I just, one of the things I talk about in my book too is I just refuse to let this man or this event like dictate my life. That was yeah. really important to me. The same thing with depression. And I and obviously if you get hospitalized, it's that's you're in a real, real dark place at that point. And it's and I, I always knew that if I can't fake it, I'm in real trouble, you know? So because yeah. I never want to also bring somebody else down. And that's not to say too that we can't talk about our problems and our struggles with each other. We should. But um I don't know. There, there's the it, there's always like, I don't know, I guess ultimately without the dark, we can't see the light, right? Like the, the darker mm-hmm. we've seen or experienced, the, the, the more light we can see and experience. And I want to share that, you know, but it's, but I also want to be careful not to like, what is it? Spiritual bypass, you know, like every day is light and love, you know, cause it's not, it's not, no. it's not. And I, it's that not. also frustrates me. Yeah. It's really hard. Right. And so like, I don't, connect with people that kind of stay on that frequency, if you will, like, it's all light and love. And we're just gonna, you know, stay up here. And I'm like, that's so fake to me. Um, it so- is. I always have this thing with over optimism, um, like the whole, you know, Pollyanna kind of thing, because I think I'm really dark, but I'm really light too. And I think <laughs> if, if you try to balance those things, let's get to you, we're going to read another piece. I want to make sure we get to it because it's really important. Okay. Um, um, do you mind reading um, your your second part of your reading you had picked out? I think you were going to go with yeah. the questions. Uh, well, it's from the chapter about when I talk about um, victim shaming and blaming, right. because that's such a huge topic that even more and more I'm sort of coming to like this place of like, this is one of my uh, platforms, if you will. Like, I don't know. Um, so when, So again, this is towards the end of this chapter, but... When I told an older gentleman that a man woke me up in my bed and stabbed me multiple times, he responded with this, what did you do to piss him off? Over and over, I was left wondering why. Why did people react like this? What was the purpose? Had they not thought about what they were saying? I understand everyone is entitled to their opinion, but they were so quick to judge, to react, to shame, to blame. Why was that? And then it hit me. At 21 years old, I came to understand something so simple, yet so complicated, cause and effect. If something so heinous could truly be random, 
It could happen to anyone at any time for no reason at all. And that feels unacceptable, unsafe, unbelievable. It is the foundation of victim shaming and blaming. They must have done something to bring that upon themselves. Therefore, I must have done something to bring this upon myself. My anger, though still there, also turned to compassion. Compassion for the vulnerability that my story made people feel. Compassion for their desperate need for this to somehow be my fault. Because this kept them from feeling vulnerable, unsafe. And although I came to understand and accept this, I can tell you that not much feels worse. It's horrible. And every time we desperately search for a cause, it often comes at the expense of the one who was victimized. My response after all this time is hope. The hope that we can listen, truly listen, and be vulnerable. Noticing not just their vulnerability, but also our own. It's uncomfortable and difficult, but so much beauty could spring forth from this space. It could shift how we see each other, how we see ourselves. Allowing our minds to stay cozy by the fire as the unknown approaches, knowing the foundation will remain strong beneath us. All while sipping the proverbial hot chocolate as Louis Armstrong croons in the background, singing of green trees, red roses, and this beautiful, wonderful world. Hey. You know, what's so interesting is I had tagged that passage about hope. Oh, yeah. Um, to me, that was the end takeaway from all of this was not... Um, it was like, how do you work through this stuff? But it was really like giving people hope. Everyone needs that. So thank you for that. Um, just so everyone listening or watching later, Tracy's watching. We have some people watching on Twitter. They can't leave comments, unfortunately. And we have some people watching on different venues. But anyone who listens or watches this live later, and I mean the video podcast, um, we'll win a copy of Lynn's book and a drawing. If everyone could share this, please, I'm going to boost it so we can get some more views on this. But anyone listening in or watching this in the next couple of days, if you share it, I will put you in a drawing for a copy of Lynn's book. And I promise you, it's very helpful to anyone who has dealt with any kind of trauma. And you've dealt with a lot of different traumas. But what I love the most is that sense of hope. And the sense that you memorialize this, like it wasn't easy and you, you know, you kind of had to find your way through it. And, you know, I just think that's so impressive with everything you're doing, that you took the risk and you did this beautiful book. It's very well done. And it's like I said, it kind of a cross between a literary memoir and um, there's some poetry and then there's some uh, questions at the end to help people with um, that are that are struggling. And. Just one more quick question before we get into how people can find you. Um, you have this um, first question in chapter 22, which you call questions I invite you to ponder. Mm -hmm. And you say, think of a time in your life when you've been fearful or scared. And it, it doesn't have to be a life-threatening situation. Mm -hmm. You make that clear. And then you tell people, um, consider after you think about the times when you've been fearful. How does, you know, times when fear kept you from doing something you had the desire to do, how did that make you feel? How did those thoughts, feelings come up for you? How do you feel now? What was the outcome? It's almost like people could use this. And I just bought this cognitive behavioral therapy book 
that has uh, similar questions in it that was recommended by a therapist. And you kind of journal about these questions. It's asking you what kind of anxieties do you have, blah, 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 and what can you do? And they give you different strategies. But I really like this because it really is a mental health kind of, um, not therapy, but kind of a technique that you can use to work through some of these anxieties and fears. Thanks. Yeah, I, that was important to me because I, you know, so many, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. Like, okay, cool. And then I just put it down and then don't think about it again. Right. So I wanted to, the, to give the opportunity for people because I know fear is a huge thing for everyone, like whether they're perceived, they're real, you know, little, big, small, whatever it is, it's like that can, that holds everyone back in some way or another, you know? Yeah. And so it was kind of this, it's like, think about the times where you've been scared and that has held you back. And how did you ultimately feel about it versus, and I, and I would, you know, I would say non-life-threatening situations. Cause obviously like that, that's a different thing than I'm scared of public speaking. Cause I look like an idiot. Right. These are the kinds yeah. of things I'm, I'm hoping to kind of for pe- people to think about. Um, and then when you were scared of something, but you did it anyway, how did that make you yeah. feel? And what was the outcome then? You know, and can you can you focus more on those, you know, experiences that you have more of those and less of the other? You know, because I know that I've held myself back plenty. You know, I'm my own worst enemy or whatever the saying is. I'm so bad with sayings. But well, that's we what create I, it in our head, right? Oh, yeah. This yeah. Catastrophes, fatalistic thinking. I remember one time I was dealing with a personal issue and I went to my therapist and I was like, I feel like, you know, the walls are going to, like, I can't do this anymore. And she's like, well, it was an issue at work. And she's like, well, what's the worst that can happen? I want you to think about the worst that can happen. And then the funniest thing that could happen. And I thought, oh, I might get an award for public defender of the year because the bar is so low, right? Like no one really expects a lot from me. And yeah, I made this mistake, but I fixed it. And I had so much anxiety over, um, I tend to um, obsess over things like Mm. mistakes I make and to someone, oh, she fixed it, big deal. But I'll just think about it over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And someone's, oh, I need to meet with you. I always think it's negative. Mm-hmm. And oh, you know, and so do you know what I mean? So that oh, yeah. thinking, like the fear, take a time when you were afraid to do something it doesn't have to be jumping out of an airplane. It could be, mm-hmm. I was afraid to go in that pond, or I was afraid to talk to this person at an event or go to go to a movie alone or go have dinner by myself, whatever it is, or write a book or, you know, yeah. and what happened, right? Yeah. And, and, and take the positive and make that the focus. Right. And just even doing it like makes you feel good about yourself, right? Like mm-hmm. I made this decision and I, and I stayed true to what I wanted to do and I did it. And like, look at me, like it feels good, you know, and it, it builds trust within ourselves. And I mean, mm. yeah, like, and fear comes back from like our prime, you know, like our, our, you know, caveman days too. Like if you got, you know, shunned out of the tribe, you died, right? And this is a very real thing that we still is somewhere in our psyche, right? Somewhere. And so there's this like intense fear of being shunned, being, you know, made fun of, being left out or, you know, whatever it is. And that that's, comes from a real place. And I, I love learning this kind of stuff. It's so fascinating yeah. to me, but it's like, but that's not going to happen. We're not going to die. But our body <laughs> right. feels like it. Our body really does feel like, nope, this is death. This is certain death. If you get kicked out, if you get made fun of, like, this is it, you're dying, you know? And it's sort of like grappling with like, okay, no, no, we're actually, we're not going to die. You know, like, and sometimes it is, what is the worst thing? What's the best thing? Because so much, we never think about what the best thing is. What is the best thing? Well, if, if the worst thing can happen, well, so can the best. They're both equally available, (laughs) right? And possible. But we, so, I mean, I'm super, again, I'm, I'm great at obsessing and reliving and going over and over things, but, um, 
yeah, it's like when I think about the times where I did take a leap and like, oh my God, like, wow, like that was so fun or exhilarating or I feel good about like, I actually can pat myself on the back and say you did a good job instead of feeling like, crap. like, well, I let myself down yet again. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's just deciding. And this is another thing too. I think in my book was so important. It's like choosing, making that decision, you know, really, really huge for me. Like just, you you have to decide and make that decision and stick with it. And if that means you need help, then you need help doing it. But, and, and we all need help, but you know, cause we can choose to stay in a crappy place. And obviously when mental health is involved, like we do need help, but you know, but, but again, it's, so much, and we all know those people that kind of wallow in it, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that pejoratively, it's really hard to get out of depression. Very, um, um, depression's the hardest thing, but in some ways, anxiety affects your life domains more, so mm. it's kind of not a, a trade off. And they're obviously related. Some people have both, and some people go back and forth. I've had more anxiety the older I get, less depression. Mm. And I say I have really high self-esteem now, almost delusional self-esteem. I always think I'm a lot thinner than I am. And uh, which is a good thing, right? Right. When I see a picture. (laughs) And so um, and I don't mind being a big girl. I'm just saying that, you know, I have a high self-esteem and I've worked on it when I was younger and then actually I did not have high self-esteem. So I think it just goes to show you that these insecurities that we have or the struggles we all have, they're not always based on reality, right? I mean, because looking yeah. at you and hearing you and you are so present and you have such a good like demeanor and optimism, no one would know just meeting that you dealt with all of this, but you decided to put it out there. And I really thank you for that. So everyone go by Choosing Survival, go to her website, and I hope you write another book. The website is www, for those listening on Apple Podcasts later, www.lynnforney.com. And if you want any information about where to get the book, you can always email me. Go to my website, WanitaEnance.com. My email is on there, you know, gemmance at yahoo.com, two M's, and I can uh, send you whatever information you need. But I hope you write another book. Is that in the works? I, I'm not sure, but I, I I think it might be. I'm I'm two chapters away from finishing up my audiobook. So this is becoming an audiobook finally. Um and I was re- resistant to it. I got in my own way. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't I'm gonna hate this if I read it, blah 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 blah, you know, like all the things. But I'm like two chapters away. I'm like, this is happening because it's on it's a, but it's another layer, I'm gonna be honest, of vulnerability for me. Like it added a whole nother layer. I had to then go in and like relive this again. And there's some chapters that really got me more than I was expecting. But um, but you know what? Like I know that I'm gonna feel really I don't know how, I don't know what the right word is, but I'm going to be really happy when, when that's done because I did it. I faced my fear. I faced the difficulty of it and I got through it and, you know, and it's like, it's another way that I can um, hopefully get this out there. And I, you know, hearing me say it too, hopefully just adds another dimension or another layer of healing or. It does. And I have two, three things to say about that. Number one, um, please send me that when it comes out, I'm happy to share it and promote it. Number two, um, I am going to do a writer showcase um, sometime next year, and I'll invite you to come on and read um, for that because I love your reading voice. Um, The other thing is um, one of the trivia questions that we're going to ask, but I'm just going to have people share instead, um, is, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Sex and the City, and because you were a dancer, who is the famous dancer in Sex and the City? But we're not going to do that. Just share this episode, please, the video, and you'll be in the drawing. 
But what I want to um, mention to you is, um, so I'm a Sex in the City fanatic. I think I'm Carrie Bradshaw. And um, they just came out with a reboot called And Just Like That. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about what you said about the audiobook is Carrie Bradshaw's, sorry, spoiler alert, anyone that hasn't watched And Just Like That, Mr. Big dies in the first or second episode of the reboot. And then Carrie writes an, a memoir about it. And then she has to do the audiobook. And she can't. She can't read the death scene. She just can't do it. She could write it. But there is something, um, and writers are writing this show so they know, there is something more vulnerable about writing or performing about your trauma or traumatic events, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even just there's a chapter when I'm speaking in the man's voice, you know, and just having to do that. that That was the one that really just really... Woo, that was that was tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, because again, it's I, I want the um, to connect and be present and have the emotional you know connection to it. And then, but you also have to think like I can't flub up the words, and then you have to go back. So it's a slow process as well. <laughs> so and then it's tapering my own frustration. It's like why does this take me ten times to get through it? Because I'm picky. I'm a perfectionist, but I also want it to be performed well. And I I don't. But I want that emotion to come across and how it feels authentic yeah. for me. So you know, so I've definitely taken my time with it. But again, I'm like, I'm two chapters away. <laughs> so, you can do it. I can and do then it. how did you, um, because a lot of writers, I think in Lander recently, um, I'm vice president of this literary organization in Southern California called the Inlandia Institute. And they just recently did a thing about audiobooks. And I personally, neither of my books is on audio and I want to do it myself. How do you find out more information on that? just Google search. Like, you know, I mean, it's really, it's, again, it's pretty simple. I happen to have like a nice mic and I have a little bit of the foam. It would, it would go smoother if I had like a whole sound booth, Mm -hmm. but it's really expensive to rent a sound room. And I've already spent enough money on this. And I'm like, and also this is too personal. I can't hire somebody else to do this. So you're just doing it yourself. I'm just doing it myself. I'm just doing it myself. And the woman that helped me publish this, she already created the, the, um, you know, the graphic for the audiobook, And so I just have to upload it, you know, when it's done. And and thankfully my husband is um, a musician as well as a chemist, but he's going to, you know, he can edit it for me and, and make it sound, you know, because they, they do have specs. So like we, you know, they have a okay. certain specs that you need to look up, like all the technical audio stuff that I'm, this isn't, I'm like, I don't know. It's something. <laughs> well, whenever um, I do a reading, like um, I had to record a reading for Inlandia recently for an anthology I'm in. And I, I just try, I don't like to edit. I don't know how to use the app for the edit yeah. for the recorder. So I just have to go literally like 50 times to get it perfect. Mm. And then I was reading the end of the story and I was at my mother-in-law's house because contractors are coming. The very end, she's like, Juanita, Juanita. <laughs> oh my God. I almost got through the, I literally had like one more sentence. Oh my gosh. So I redid it and it wasn't perfect and people were hammering in the background, but I'm like, oh, whatever. It's just for like a journal on the webpage to people to click. But okay. So when your audiobook comes out, I'm so excited for you. Please send it to me and you've got to be on my writer showcase next year. I would love that would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I am lucky that I have my, my husband who can edit it. But I mean, you can hire editors, right? Like there's all yeah. there's just there's there's a will, there's a way, like you said earlier. So yeah, just find someone because I mean I've done like little chunks even like if it's a really long paragraph I'll do it in two separate because I know like my dog's gonna walk by the ice maker is gonna go yeah. off like some or I'll flub up a word when I'm right at the end and like no so yeah. I just got okay with just doing little chunks at a time 
Okay. That's so good that, to know. Yeah. That helped me a lot because it was, because it's adding this, all this pressure. Well, I can't screw up and I'm, I have to read 10 pages perfectly and, and my, or my throat will get dry or whatever Who could it is. do that, right? I can't, I can't. So, you know, in, again, long paragraph, I'm like, mm, I would, you know, and sometimes I would go, oh, it's going well. I'm going to keep going. And then sure enough, I would flub up a word. I'm like, oh, so I would just find a good spot. And again, it's an editor being able to piece it together to make the flow still mm. work. But um, so, you know, you want to do more than like a sentence at a time. But yeah, I think that's yeah. really helpful. Just doing very, you know, kind of little like minute long, minute, ten, maybe yeah. two minute long chunks. And then you yeah, yeah. edit it together. Um, just really quick. I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite podcasts. I got to look it up really quick. But there's a woman um, who, um, does can Canadian broadcasting or whatever. And she wrote, um, she wrote a book, but then she made it into a podcast. It's called alone in love story. And it's, it's addicting. And then okay. it got, because she made it into a podcast, it got like a million viewers through CBC. And then, um, I think it's Michelle. What's her name? Yeah. Um, Michelle Paris. Um, she's a pretty famous broadcaster. And so she did it backwards. She she read her audio book into this podcast. And it's about her marriage's disintegration, her husband cheating on her, her having a baby and all this stuff and raising pretty much with the child divorced and meeting this guy in the white shirt. But um, it's brilliant. But then because of that, it got made into a book. So I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, I always say that the precursor to podcasting was audiobooks, right? Mm -hmm. I used to listen to audiobooks driving to work. I would listen and on on DVD or CD. Mm -hmm. I listened to The Goldfinch. I listened to To Kill a Mockingbird read by Sissy Spacek. I listened to The Sisters, which is about Virginia Woolf and her sister. And they have this beautiful cast of British actors mm -hmm. and actresses doing that reading about like the Bloom's, uh, the circle of writers and, you know, in uh, postmodernism and modernism. And so I think it's really fascinating that you being an actress and then a filmmaker, and then you're doing this audiobook. I think it's going to be brilliant. Thanks. <laughs> I hope so. No, and you hear something different when you hear it read aloud, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's, you know, you're when you're reading it, you're hearing it in your own voice, mm -hmm. right? But then when you're mm -hmm. listening to it, it's it's there, especially if it's the person that created the work, then it's their voice. And it's, you know, and, and I am going to be more emotionally connected to what I've written because I lived it, you know? And so it's just, it's just, again, it's that energy exchange too, that I think comes into play. That's not there when you're just reading and hearing your own voice, right? It's just, again, it's just, it's another layer. It's another level. Well, great. Well, um, I want to do two things. Where can people find you? Um, do you have any events coming up? And do you want to give any shout outs? Oh, gosh. Um, big shout out to my husband, of course. And um, yeah, <laughs> and you for having me. Thank you so much. Aww, and um, thank you. PR by the book who like found like made us come together, um, for sure. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't have any events yet. But um, you know, it's I, for me, what, what's coming next is like, what, where do I want to take this? And I would love to yeah. maybe speak about it. You know, I'm still kind of yeah. in that process of like, what, what do I want um, to kind of happen? But um, you can email me at choosing survival at gmail.com. Um, I'm on Instagram, Lynn Forney. I also have a choosing survival Instagram account. Um, Great. You know, and you know, you should do some Barnes and Nobles. The way you do that is you go to their Instagram page of the Barnes and Noble, and there's a contact there. And then you email them and give them a bio, tell them about your book and you can go to a Barnes and Noble and sell books oh, there. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a reading, but you're there signing and they do it for a lot of uh, small presses and self-published authors. And I did this whole Barnes and Noble circuit 
I sometimes, because you're outgoing and I'm outgoing, I've sold 20, 30 books before these things. And they say, if you sell 10, you're a success. Right. And you sometimes you have to sell them on consignment and bring them with you. And sometimes they buy um, some, but the problem is you don't want them to send them back because that's really expensive. So um, yeah, I would suggest that as far as marketing, something you can do on your own that you don't need a publicist for is to email these Barnes and Nobles. And that's for all the writers listening. I probably did 10 or 15 Barnes and Nobles this way. And I know David Romero, who's a spoken word and poet performer does this. And he even does uh, readings at Barnes and Noble because he has a connection. And so what I have to say is that look for small bookstores in your area send them your book, send them a bio and just cold, cold email them. And you never know what's going to hit, honestly. And even if you only sell five or 10 books, your book might reach the person that needs to read it the most. I was at a Barnes and Noble and this woman came up to me. She bought my book for her daughter because she was thinking of dropping out of high school. Mm. And this is about what happens when like, why would you do that? Right. Don't, don't sabotage yourself. And so I think that it's really important that you get this book out there Thank and you. Uh, publicists are great, but you can do some of this stuff on your own too. Like cold calling the Barnes and Noble, cold emailing bookstores and Barnes and Noble. Everything's on Instagram. Now you I can know. get all the contact information on there. It's, yeah, it's no. kind of amazing. Thank you for that tip. Cause I do need to be getting out more myself. <laughs> Because my contract ended with my PR firm. So I'm like, I need to do more of this myself. So that's a, a wonderful advice for all of us. <laughs> so thank you. And if there's podcasts you like that interview writers, you can cold email them too. I was on a podcast. Um, it's Latin centric and it's for first gen. So I'm second gen, but they let me on anyway. It's called um, a, like a mommy and poppy. What do you ask your parents kind of thing? And it's interesting. I cold emailed them and I got on because I had heard, I've listened to that podcast. So if there's literary podcasts that you like, I mean, well, people always need guests, you know, mm -hmm. and your book is so well done and you have such a message of uh, positivity and healing and how to get through some of these issues that I think is mental health podcast might be a good venue too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on everyone. Go buy Lynn Forney's book. Please share this video podcast and always you can listen later on Apple podcasts. We should have this on within the week. Let's give everyone a wave. Thank you for listening in, everyone, and watching. For those of you on Apple Podcasts, this will be up in one week. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.